Welcome to the podcast of Tech.eu, Europe's premier technology industry information portal and market intelligence platform. This is our episode number 91, released on October 17th, 2018. Today we will talk about Apple's shopping tour in Europe, HelloFresh and subscription marketing, and a possible future alternative to PowerPoint and Keynote. We've also got one pre-recorded interview for you. Uh, it's a bit longer than usual, which is why it's one and not two. And it's with uh, Simon Dukac, an investor whose firm's thesis is to fund startups founded by immigrants. I am your host, Andre Degeler, a tech journalist based in Amsterdam, joined today by Natalie Novik, our research analyst and feature writer. Hi, Natalie. How is it going with you? Hi, Andre. I'm doing well. And... From what I understand, you've just returned from Helsinki. Did you meet any great companies while you were there? Oh, yeah, for sure. The trip was actually pretty nice. Uh, it was uh, mostly about uh, looking at uh, all the effort that uh, Finland as a country and an ecosystem is putting towards uh, working on AI. And uh, I think they're actually doing a lot. So we saw uh, both interest in startups, uh, but also larger companies that are doing lots of interesting things. Plus, uh, we saw uh, governmental organizations and research organizations that are also busy with uh, applying artificial intelligence to uh, some real life cases. Mostly, interestingly, it is, uh, it, it is healthcare uh, for Finland. A lot of, uh, a lot of medical uh, startups and uh, medical research uh, that is also being applied in the real life. So I'm pretty happy with the trip and uh, I think I will be writing up something within the next uh, couple of weeks uh, to share uh, with the tech EU readers uh, what I have seen. Yeah, that, that sounds great. And it's especially fitting because last week, the biggest deal also went to Finland with immersive reality technology startup. Varjo raised 31 million US dollar series B round from Atomico, Next47, and a number of other investors. Um, it's kind of a pretty interesting company, and, and they've really done a lot in a short time. They were just founded in 2016. And this investment will be used to bring their technology to market in what they claim is the world's first VR, XR hardware and software product is specifically for industrial use. And Finland, a lot of interesting things have been happening there recently. Like EdTech is huge. Gaming is huge, especially in Helsinki. Um, and um, I think you'll be returning there for uh, Slush coming up in the next couple of weeks as well. Is that right? Yeah, it's a, it's a bit later than that. It's early December. But yeah, I will be back in a few weeks and I'm actually really looking forward to, to that. It's a, it's a great ecosystem and it's always very interesting to, uh, to look around there. That also goes for most of the Nordics and there are some places that I haven't been yet at all. Like I've never been to Oslo, for example. So I do hope to uh, go at some point to look around and see uh, what uh, people and companies there are doing. So it is time to go into the news from the past week. And our first topic today is Apple's shopping in Europe. 
So the week, uh, the, the week that has passed uh, brought us a couple of stories, actually, about uh, uh, Apple's uh, deals and acquisitions in Europe. Uh, I will start with the one uh, in Denmark. Uh, local Danish media reported uh, last week that a Copenhagen-based startup called Spectral uh, was sold to Apple for uh, $30 million. Uh, the deal, interestingly, allegedly took place in late 2017, but only surfaced uh, around now. Actually, Apple only kind of officially confirmed the deal after it was all over the media, but that's, I guess, just uh, how Apple rolls. Yeah, and I think that's pretty interesting and what really stands out is that it was kept under wraps for so long and you must have had a lot of people that were quite committed to keeping this story from getting out there. Do you have any speculation as to why that was and what are some of the reasons that we're only learning about this now um, after nearly a year later? I don't think there's anything special really about this deal. I guess this is just how uh, how Apple prefers uh, to have it. And uh, the fact that we have learned uh, about it uh, recently is uh, not because it was officially announced after all, but just because this uh, Danish uh, newspaper called uh, Borsen uh, found out uh, about, uh, about the deal. And uh, uh, later on, Apple told uh, TechCrunch uh, what is considered a confirmation of sorts, quote, Apple buys smaller technology companies from time to time, and we generally do not discuss our purpose or plans, uh, quote, ends. And I suspect this is something uh, of sorts uh, like a canned response, probably, uh, from Apple. Uh, this, uh, uh, this is something that they send uh, to journalists who are too curious about uh, uh, companies that P Apple acquires. So I think it's just one of the many deals that we are still not aware of. I'm pretty sure that there are more of those. And uh, I'm pretty sure these deals actually are sort of known about in the very like local ecosystems, but uh, they never uh, they, they never surface uh, in uh, in the English speaking, let's say, um, entrepreneurial publications. So, uh, but what is Spectral after all and what it does? Let's take a closer look. Uh, the company started in 2015 and actually was called differently. It was called a Cloud Cutout and uh, it has been focusing on, well, making cutouts. The technology itself was built upon the founder's uh, PhD research and it uses, quote, uh, recent advances in spectral graph theory and neural networks, quote ends, to separate an object or a person in a photo or video from the background. So basically a cutout, uh, sort of a green uh, screen technology. An interesting fact, by the way, is that uh, the first market uh, that uh, cloud cutout uh, targeted uh, three years ago uh, was school photos. So basically you take this head or body of this uh, school uh, children, you make a photo of and put them on some cool backgrounds and then the parents have to pay for it. So of course we have no idea what Apple is going to do with Spectral, but I guess it could be used uh, in, uh, for example, AR uh, applications that have not been released or maybe in some special uh, camera modes, uh, uh, this uh, post-factum focus changes and all that. So I think there's a lot of things that you could uh, do with a tech like this, especially when you have uh, budgets like Apple does. Yeah, and I really like hearing about successful cases of tech that have successfully come out of a university. 
Many people argue that Europe isn't really great at getting this university innovation to market, but here is a really clear example where that's not the case and quite a successful one, actually. I would definitely say that uh, for Europe, the commercialization of research has improved drastically over the past few years. And now, uh, even as I'm writing uh, news stories and uh, talking to people around, there are so many different startups that uh, either come out straight out of the university or use uh, some academic research uh, in, the, in their core technology and stuff like that. So it's happening all the time and I'm, I'm really happy. I'm really happy to see it. Now, that wasn't it for Apple, though, right? Uh, and a day or two after the Spectral news broke, I think like next day, Apple was reported to close another deal uh, in the region, and uh, uh, that one is much bigger in terms of the money involved. Uh, the company paid $300 million in cash for a significant part of the business of the chip maker called the uh, Dialog Semiconductor. And in addition to that, Apple committed another $300 million uh, to make purchases from the remaining part of its business. That makes it uh, $600 million uh, committed uh, in total. And this is a pretty big step in Apple's long-term strategy of getting better, faster, and more efficient chips uh, for its uh, mobile devices. Apple actually worked uh, uh, with uh, Dialog before for a long time on uh, different uh, chips. So now the deal... Uh, includes a lot of intellectual property uh, from Dialog and also licenses for a further intellectual property that will be developed uh, by the company. But even that is not it, because another part of the deal uh, sees 300 people from Dialog uh, joining Apple, and that's about 16% of all employees of, uh, of the European company. Uh, most of these people have already been working closely with Apple on uh, different projects for a while, so now in some cases uh, the deal means uh, that uh, Apple will take over entire buildings that used to be owned uh, and used by Dialog. And in some other cases, uh, both companies will uh, share the buildings and kind of uh, coexist together. So to put this in the European context, so where it's all happening, uh, the teams that are joining Apple are based out of uh, the cities of Livorno in Italy, uh, Swindon in England, and uh, Nabern and Neuaubing in the south of Germany, that's uh, somewhere uh, near Munich. So this is this week in Apple in Europe. Uh, pretty exciting news, I think. And uh, moving forward, uh, Natalie, can you tell us more about subscription marketing? Yeah, so this week I wanted to talk a little bit about HelloFresh. I mean, they haven't been in the news that recently, but a new article has just come out um, on Inc. And also it's been reprinted in the week and, and elsewhere. Uh, it's really kind of explosive and it's by uh, Bert Helm. And as you can tell from the title um, called HelloFresh, the world's most ruthless food startup. It doesn't pull any punches. And as you might suspect, HelloFresh doesn't come out looking too good here um, in some respects. And I thought it was a good time to revisit HelloFresh, especially as we're about one year away from when they first listed on the Frankfurt Stock Exchange. And in many ways, HelloFresh and their business model and kind of their strategy has been hailed as a, a, a model of how European founders can successfully grow in the U.S., exit, but exit locally. So I think maybe there's a, a lesson in there for us. And I thought it was worth having um, another look at this. 
And Helm's piece covers really a lot of ground. And I do think if you have time, it's worth reading. It, the original piece is quite long, um, but I don't want to dwell on some of the negative aspects, some of his personal impressions of the founder um, and kick them while they're down, so to speak. But I just wanted to examine one aspect that he brought up from time to time, namely about the challenge of marketing and customer retention when it comes to subscription businesses. Subscription models are something that a lot of European startups are using. Um, and Helm outlines in terms of HelloFresh that and they're using a number of kind of aggressive tactics to sign up customers. So you might have had the experience yourself um, with their street teams that really try to get you to sign up on the spot, um, offering kind of free food boxes for your first order. And then when it comes time to when customers no longer want to continue with the service, they also have had some aggressive tactics to, to improve customer retention. Um, but with regards to the street teams outside of Europe, especially communities are fighting back pretty hard. Um, in Australia, apparently it's really bad. It's received a lot of negative press and they've had to close their street team in New York after a number of complaints from the community. But their marketing really seems to be everywhere. And every time you open a magazine, it seems like there's always a slip that falls out for a free food box. But this heavy marketing is in reaction to one of the key challenges of HelloFresh, their business model, and it's customer churn. And when it comes to mail delivery subscriptions, what the academic research is really finding, and maybe from your personal experience, if you've ever tried one of these companies, um, it's showing that people don't really stick with these delivery boxes. And what you tend to notice when you look at the landscape of these different subscription models, um, they really tend to suffer sometimes from this syndrome of being the product that was designed to solve the problem you didn't really know you had. Um, it's not always a pain point um, that a lot of people have with some of these companies, especially that we're seeing now, um, kind of in the later stage of this evolution. Um, it's not a pain point that, that a lot of people are identifying. So it's no wonder that customer churn is a big deal and that people don't always stay, stay with it. Yeah, interestingly, I don't think I actually ever experienced this aggressive marketing by HelloFresh, even though I know that they are here in the Netherlands and uh, people in Amsterdam call them the food Jehovah's or something like that. So, but yeah, I, I, I've, never, I've never seen them, interestingly, uh, but uh, are there any numbers about like how bad uh, the things are and the, what, the, what the churn is like for them? Yeah, well, you can kind of expect that they're not going to be very public about what these numbers actually look like. But uh, there's been some research done by Daniel McCarthy, who's a professor of marketing in the U.S. at Emory University. And he's developed an algorithm that has estimated HelloFresh's six-month retention rate to be just 17%. And for every 100 customers the company acquires, only eight of them are projected to remain customers for over two years. So that's, that's quite a very um, a huge number there. And compared with other mail delivery kits that, that he's studied, he's found that HelloFresh generally has been able to acquire more customers while keeping operating expenses under control um, somewhat better than the competitors. But customer acquisition has been entirely driven by this really high marketing expenditure. And you'll notice the street teams like in, in Berlin, especially, um, they are quite visible. Um, and most significantly, when you're using these tactics, the quality of those customers um, is worse. So, so I quote, without marketing, the business is dead. 
But why does this matter? Well, there's certainly a limit about who the company will be able to reach. And while the more customers have tried and moved away from the product, the more costly they'll be to acquire in the future. And ultimately, it has some pretty big implications for the long-term value and sustainability of the company. Because companies that are able to retain their customers and provide them with something that is of value should ultimately be more than companies that don't. And this was a hard thing to measure in the past, especially because companies are not very open with that information. But if, And the figures can, can mask some of the, the inner workings. But the research is getting better, and we have now a little bit more of a window into the inner workings here. So what's very interesting about this research is that some have attributed it and the algorithm to why um, the Blue Apron IPO, they're one of the competitors to HelloFresh in the United States, they opened at a price that was a third lower than what the company predicted. So so, so companies can't hide anymore. Um, Now investors can do better due diligence. Um, And in case you are wondering, right now, HelloFresh is trading um, just slightly above what their opening um, was um, about 10 euros last year. So, But across the year, the stock price has really oscillated quite a bit based on company releases. Another reason why I wanted to talk about this topic is it seems like now, especially there's a subscription box for everything. You can't open Instagram or listen to a podcast without getting some advertisement for another one. I'm seeing all the time things for ethical food, period products, vegan food, plants and gardening. Um, I mean, how many houseplants does a person need? Um, But while it's hard to find reliable data on this, and I've really looked to see kind of what the size of this market is, um, we don't know. But in the UK alone, it's estimated to jump in value to one billion pounds a year by 2022, uh, from about 500 million pounds last year. So have you tried out any great subscription boxes, Andre? Surprisingly, no, actually never. Uh, Not uh, HelloFresh, not any other uh, food-related kind of thing, Uh, but like nothing at all. I mean, I can see the the idea and I can see, of course, why, why startups are so happy to try and to kind of push uh, this uh, economy uh, into the public just because it works so great with online uh, startups, online products, right? You get a subscription for, I don't know, for like an online game. You get subscription for your uh, Photoshop and Lightroom and all this other stuff for your email if, you, if you're doing a corporate account, uh, for your podcast uh, uh, recording uh, studio service and all that stuff. So, of course, it's so tempting, I guess, to just get uh, this model and try to move it towards the real life and physical things and so on but it doesn't really seem to uh, seem to work that well but again funny enough i'm actually i think that i am the target audience of uh, this uh, hello fresh uh, uh, kind of thing because i usually have very little time to cook maybe like half an hour i'm also quite lazy i generally cook uh, similar meals every day so yeah generally that would probably be something for me but no i have never tried and not really planning to not uh, after uh, this uh, conversation (laughs) in particular Uh, are you using anything or have you been You know, I did use HelloFresh for a a few months about two years ago um, because I lived in kind of a very remote area and you didn't always get the best um, selection of foods. But 
we didn't stay with it for that long because it really requires a lot of behavioral change. When they send you the food boxes, you lose a bit of agency over what you feel like cooking for dinner. And sometimes it's not always easy to use up all of the ingredients in time. So, I mean, in, in an effort of, of sharing some, some news that you can use for all the founders out there, maybe it's a cautionary tale. Who knows um, if HelloFresh will really be able to get around this retention hurdle um, and maybe thinking about how you can provide value um, while also giving customers a choice um, because it does require quite a bit of of adjustment. Um, it's not just signing up for an online game. It's it's about changing really um, a big part of your lifestyle. Um, and that's what I think the article that, that I mentioned previously brings out really well. Yeah, for sure. What I've also been thinking, it's interesting to see, I don't think it's in the research, but like, so uh, we have these people who tried uh, HelloFresh and uh, weren't that happy with it. So stayed for a while and then went away. So does it mean that these people are less likely to join HelloFresh again? Or are they less likely to try another uh, meal-in-the-box service? Or are they less likely to try any other subscription box at all? So when do we get this uh, market saturation and this, uh, if you will, I know people uh, being uh, tired of uh, uh, this, uh, this kind of thing. I guess at some point it will happen. So probably, I don't want to sound too fatalistic here, but... Uh, probably there will be a point when all these subscription boxes will just uh, uh, start uh, declining and go almost to zero. Yeah, and and I mean all those boxes. A lot of the times you can't recycle them, and um, I know HelloFresh now is committed to using more sustainable packaging. But once you're getting a lot of subscription boxes, that's a lot of trash, and that's another big pain point a lot of customers have have identified as well. Um, so maybe that's part of part of the the way forward to address that one small issue in scope of quite a number of other ones. Right. Okay. Uh, let us move on towards uh, the interview of uh, this episode. Uh, you are going now to listen to a conversation uh, with an investor from the U.S., uh, Simon Dukac, the founder of uh, One Way Ventures. So this is a a VC firm that has a very interesting thesis. It only invests in founders that immigrated from somewhere else, not necessarily into the US, but maybe also in Europe. Uh, just listen and there will be more on it. We will be back in some 20 minutes. Hello, everyone. This is Andre Degler of Tech.eu, recording today at LVYT Arena, a place at an actual stadium which has become home for uh, startups and uh, entrepreneurs and investors for two days uh, here in Ukraine today. I have been able to catch up with uh, Semyon Dukac, former blackjack uh, player turned entrepreneur, turned investor, uh, who has just uh, shared his story on stage. So I wanted to follow up with a few questions. But first, Simon, for those who didn't uh, hear uh, the story that you just uh, told uh, on stage, can you sum it up within like one minute, maybe, what uh, you are doing, uh, who you are, and what your main beliefs would be? Ah, the story of my life in one minute. Huh? Yep. Well, I'm Sami Andukach, and I run a fund called One Way Ventures, uh, together with my partner, Evelyn Buchatsky. And uh, we invest in immigrant founders, people who've moved from one country to another, because we believe that people anywhere in the world should have the opportunity to, to work anywhere, to build businesses, to create value. Right. 
So what uh, uh, I wanted to ask first, I read uh, some stories uh, on you before, and you also mentioned it on stage, that you hate doing due diligence. And some of the stories mentioned that sometimes you would just uh, write uh, a check uh, to an entrepreneur at the first meeting without uh, going through much uh, procedural uh, things. So how does it work for you? Uh, well, I think uh, in the context of a fund, we'll probably have to do a little bit more of that than, than I did as an agent. Right. But still, relative to other funds, I would say we're pretty quick and we're willing to take some risk. So it's just about the risk for you. To, like, why don't you like doing due diligence? Like, what's, uh, what's the problem with it for you? I'm not a skeptical person. I want to believe, you know, I want to be inspired. I don't want to look for problems. You can find reasons not to do something if you look hard enough on anything. I want to find a reason to, to say yes, not a reason to say no. That's kind of something new to hear from an investor. Like I, I, I would have uh, thought that it comes with a job to be kind of skeptical and uh, finding what could possibly go wrong with a, uh, with a venture. Not for me. And, you know, I, I, I think a fund does require you know, some level of, of rigor. So I, I can't say that there's no rigor at all, but that's not the main part. I mean, I think the main part is being at the table with the best founders in the world. So it's not that takes a lot of work to be in the conversation. And I'd rather spend the time on being able to reach the strongest people. I want to make the impact so that I have the reputation so that the very strongest founders actually talk to me. And then, yeah, I'll spend a little bit of time on the selection and do a little bit of diligence to make sure I don't screw up and, and do the wrong deal. But I'll also take quite a bit of risk because I want to spend more of my efforts maximizing the deal flow and also maximizing the value I can give to the founders, which ultimately translates into bigger deal flow and lessen my energy on, on minimizing risk. It's more about focusing on the growth and the upside rather than the downside, if that makes sense. And as an investor, you know, it's a diversified thing. So you accept some, some failure. You accept that sometimes you'll, you'll make a mistake. Sometimes you'll invest in the wrong person. But the bigger mistake would be acting too slowly and missing the opportunity to invest in somebody amazing. So you're always saying that you're investing in people, not startups. You always say person instead of like startup that would sometimes. Yeah, I mean, 90% of the decision is about the team for me. 10% is about the startup, but, but most is about the team. You have an experience uh, with an accelerator, right? So you used to run uh, tech stars in Boston. And normally accelerators, for example, would not invest in single founders. Is that also something that you would not do yourself as an angel and also as a VC? Uh, it's interesting. So I think... I'm actually probably a little bit more likely to consider a single founder now. Uh, I don't like single founders. I prefer to invest in teams. But at the accelerator stage, when you're dealing like only at the earliest stage, you got to have a team there, right? Because there's just no way. The, the times you can get away with a single founder is when, you, when you're talking about a serial entrepreneur who has the funding, right, and has the network to be able to staff up and just hire a bunch of strong people really quickly and has the power to convince extremely strong people to work for them, right? And so that, that's usually a higher valuation kind of situation out of the gate. So it's not going to be an accelerator. That person, if someone still needs an accelerator, they need a co-founder even more than you need an accelerator, right? It's just inconceivable that somebody strong enough not to need a co-founder would ever need an accelerator. So anyone who would consider an accelerator better have co-founders first, if that makes sense. But all that being said, I don't like investing when there's a single person very much. It would have to be a very, very experienced it's not usually going to be somebody as young, and I actually prefer often less experienced younger founders, right? Uh, but th those always require teams. How it was for yourself in your entrepreneurial years? I was a single founder. 
I was a crappy entrepreneur. I wouldn't invest in myself as an entrepreneur. I was too short-sighted. I, I didn't really have a long-term vision about the market. I was really suited to be an investor, not an entrepreneur. I did reasonably well. I had some success, right? But I didn't build a unicorn. So I had enough success for myself, but it wouldn't have, And I've got some customers. I mean, I'm proud of what I did, but it wasn't a venture-backed type of company. It didn't have a, a very large exit. Right. So one-way ventures, a company that a VC firm that invests in uh, immigrant founders. So how big is the fund now? So we are targeting a $30 million fund at the moment. So as of today, we're, we're you know in the 20s, uh, just under that. But we're expecting it to be 30. And uh, how many deals and deals have you made so far? We've made 10 deals. 10 deals, right. And uh, do you already see any particular uh, countries of origin that would be more uh, likely to get uh, funding from you? Do you see like people coming from a particular country that uh, you tend to invest more in? So we are really open to people from anywhere. We don't look for particular countries. The reality is that in the U.S., uh, the largest group of successful immigrant entrepreneurs would be Indian entrepreneurs and then uh, other big ones would be Israelis, Russians, Brazilians. Um, English, Canadian, and there's a bunch of others, right? Um, for us, probably there's there's, and we I think we have we already covered like eight or nine different countries, right? Um, so we've been pretty diverse. We have someone from Mexico, we have someone from Kosovo, we have we have a slew, of, and of course we have India and we have Russia and we have Israel and Brazil, uh, Ukraine, of course. I would say, if anything, for us, they are, we might see more more Russian-speaking founders and more Brazilian founders because that's, you know, my partner is from Brazil and and speaks the language, right? And that helps. And obviously, I speak Russian, and we have both have a lot of connections in Ukraine. And, and my partner is a huge Ukrainian, you know, patriot and spent eight years of her life here. So we're just going to naturally think, invest in more, more of those founders. But that's not the goal of the fund. That's just the natural bias of the initial partners. We expect to have a larger fund with more partners, and we don't expect to have this bias forever. Right. It's funny that you mentioned Canadians, because after your talk, I was just talking to another person, and uh, uh, he said, okay, so would Canadian actually count as an immigrant uh, in the U.S.? Uh, sounds like the cultures are reasonably close, the language is the same, and so yeah, on. Yeah, it, so it would count, but barely. <laughs> Right. Uh, I'm, I'm going to repeat one question of uh, what was already asked of you at this stage because I really uh, like the answer. Uh, so what uh, would be the verticals that you would, would rather not uh, invest in, both as an angel and as a VC? So I avoid uh, areas where I feel the founders don't try to make the world a better place, don't try to create value for anyone, where they're just exploiting uh, some some weakness, I guess, in people. So things around gambling, alcohol and drugs and stuff like that, um, that just doesn't really excite me to invest in that. So I prefer not to. So at this point, uh, are you only looking at uh, immigrants in the U.S. that you would be investing in? Or no, so the, the purpose of the fund is to back people from anywhere in the world who have moved to another country, right? We, we like movement, we like uh, global thinking. And we know that people who have gone through that difficult process of, of going to another culture are more likely to succeed and build a big business. So none of that story is focused on the U.S. We are mostly investing in the U.S. today because that's where we live. And uh, that's just a consequence of our current location. It's not a long-term strategy. And you said that you were coming to uh, Berlin in spring? I'm planning to spend a couple of months in Berlin and hope to do some investing. Yeah. So uh, is it just like purely for, uh, for uh, work purposes? I'm exploring the ecosystem.
And my wife likes it. My wife likes Berlin. Right. But I'm I'm exploring it, and we'll see where it goes. I don't know. I'm open to the world. I, I don't know that I'll live in America for the rest of my life, though. So far, 28 years in Boston. Right. So do you uh, do you have any general take on uh, the European ecosystem, maybe in comparison to the U.S. ecosystem? What's your current opinion on it before coming in? I think both the U.S. and the European ecosystems are going to suffer from their backlash against immigrants. I think that's going to hurt entrepreneurship. Uh, and innovation more broadly. I think it's temporary in both places, and I look forward to it ending. I look forward to uh, p to free trade being encouraged and to free movement of people being encouraged. Um, I really do think that's the most important uh, attribute to, to uh, having more innovation. I mean, education is also very important, of course, and uh, general support in society for taking risk, for doing new stuff is important. But the most important thing, I think, for a country is, is attitude towards immigrants. That, that's the single most important driver of, of, of success, of creating value, of creating jobs for the future. And in the U.S., what's, uh, what's immigration in the U.S. is more likely uh, to, 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 to be uh, refugees in, uh, in Europe. So do you, uh, do you, would you also invest uh, like, and look at uh, companies founded by refugees in Europe? I'd love to. I'd love to. I mean, immigrants are immigrants. Like, they're people who move from one place to another. If people move because they're running away from war, well, that's even better, right? The, the more adversity they went through in their life, the harder their lot was, the more likely I believe they will be to succeed if they get to the same starting point. So, you know, I'm not going to invest in the migrant that, that doesn't have any technical skills and doesn't have any idea of what to build, right? I'm going to invest in a scalable tech startup. But if I see a company that's a scalable tech startup with real technology and real passion for their customers, started by someone who had gone through that experience, who started as a, a person, you know, in, in, in a camp with nothing, right, and lost their whole family to war or whatever, that person has gone through so much more to get to the starting point that I'm probably going to pick him over someone who hasn't had that experience. They're just a stronger person. They're a more special, more selected person, right? Because the great majority of people who go through that are never going to be able to start a company. So as an investor, it's a free filter for me. So now we're in Ukraine and you have certain connections to the country, as far as I understand. So you've, you've been here uh, millions of times. What do you think is changing here? And we, in which direction uh, is going in terms of entrepreneurial ecosystem? I think it's positive. I think Ukraine, Ukraine is becoming a little bit more connected to the rest of the world instead of having you know, one tight connection to Russia, Ukraine now has a broader set of looser connections to a lot more countries. And so I think the degree to which Ukrainians are able to travel in Europe now and go back and forth and see the rest of the world, uh, welcome more people from Europe uh, here, I think that makes it stronger. Uh, Ukraine is also very connected to the US via the outsourcing industry. And I think that ultimately translates into a more global uh, point of view, right? And so Uh, for those reasons, the, the, and in general, I think, I don't know, it seems like an optimistic kind of place with a lot of smart young people, um, a lot of technical skills, a lot of good uh, leftovers from the Soviet system in terms of basic science education that I think is still in the culture to some degree. And so I'm definitely bullish in Ukraine. I mean, you never know, with, with the war in the East, it's, it's scary, right? But I'm bullish. As far as I remember from uh, uh, from the talk you uh, 20 years ago or something, you also helped uh, an American company to set up uh, development here, right? 
Oh yeah, yeah. One of the companies I was very involved with, uh, SNTP, had most of the people in Kiev and Odessa. And in another company that I was uh, involved with a little bit in the beginning, uh, called PDF Filler, now has very large office in Kiev. It's doing very, very well. So uh, here in Ukraine, I've seen so many times and heard so many times this sort of uh, opposition between the outsourcing software development industry and the startup ecosystem. So do you think that one uh, is possible without the other? And do you think that the outsourcing industry kind of suppresses the growth of the entrepreneurial ecosystem? That's a good question. I think sometimes it suppresses it, right? Because it provides a lot of easy, high-paying jobs for people not to start companies and not to take risk. But in other ways, it, it actually creates it because it creates people who are educated in building good software and, uh, and who are, let's say, rich enough to have a chance to start something. And so there's plenty of uh, product startups that come out of outsourcing companies. So I would say overall, the effect is probably more positive than negative, but there's a negative aspect to it, right? Uh, in as much as like, if people know that they can go back to a high paying outsourcing job any day, it makes them less likely to persevere in a startup. It makes them feel less like an immigrant startup, right? Uh, so it almost, it makes it too easy to try to start companies, right? You try, it doesn't work, you go back to outsourcing. That's not really what I want to see in a founder. I want to see a person who left their country, can't go back, has no other choice but to succeed. But then, if we think about it this way, then how is it uh, principally different uh, from, let's say, uh, San Francisco, where you, as a talented engineer, uh, you have a choice of either going into a startup, a founding a startup, or going to one of the Google's, Amazon's... Uh, yeah, it's the same. In, that, in that regard, it's the same. Well, it's different that Amazon pays a lot more than Ukrainian outsourcing companies. Actually, well, living in San Francisco costs a bit more than Kiev. But even taking that into account, these companies pay really, really well. You know, I mean, engineers at Facebook and Google make $200,000 a year. I mean, life in San Francisco is not that expensive. You know, people exaggerate. Um, it's still a good life. Although, you know, it's hard to say. Maybe, yeah, I, mean, I don't know. Maybe not. I haven't really done that analysis. Maybe someone here making $5,000 a month actually lives better than someone making making that in San Francisco. It's possible, right? Um, quality of life isn't just how much things cost. Too. It's, it's overall quality of life. But to really answer your question, the reason that San Francisco hasn't killed its startup spirit by having a bunch of high-paying jobs is very simple. It's that the people who are starting these companies cannot work for someone else. That's just not really an option for them. They're going to be miserable. They just can't do it. Like, they have to start a company. They're entrepreneurs, you know, it's in their blood. So they don't really um, look at, at those jobs as a, as a viable alternative for themselves. But if we think that the distribution of these people is uh, even across the world, why is it not the same here in Ukraine or elsewhere? I think there are lots of people starting things here. I think uh, San Francisco obviously has a lot more resources for building a big business, right? The, the HR resource, the people are there. Um, the money is there. But I think this is a perfectly valid emerging ecosystem and it's going to get stronger and stronger. I, I don't think for, for the rest of life all startups will be done in San Francisco. I think San Francisco will keep growing, but I think it's relative. Uh, position to the rest of the world will probably shrink because there's just so many other places that are also great. Like Boston? 
Yeah, like Boston, or like like Berlin, like like anywhere. I mean, like India and China and all kinds of places. Africa. What do you think about uh, the European practice of uh, governmental support for startups, which is almost unheard of in the US? Yeah, I'm not a big fan. But I don't know. Maybe it has a place for a while. I'm not convinced it's all that great. But it could be okay. You know, it could be just in what you need in the very beginning. But you can't take it too far. Or you're going to mess up all the incentives and have the wrong people do the wrong stuff for the wrong reasons. But I don't want to say that it has no value. It probably has some value in the beginning. I'm not an expert in that. Right. And do you also make uh, still, still make uh, angel deals outside of one way these days? No, I don't. Why not? Just want to focus? or I'm focusing. Because one way is a startup. And you, in a startup, you have to focus. Oh, full-time founders? Yeah, exactly. I'm full-time. Sometimes I'll do like a follow-on investment in an existing company that I have. If it really doesn't fit into one way, it's not an immigrant. That's about the only way. I'm not going to write new angel checks. Would you would you generally think about establishing a headquarters or whatever of uh, one way in Europe? Yeah, I'd like to. Uh, a cheesy question. Uh, is there anything that you learned while being a blackjack player that you use in your investment decisions and generally in your practice, investment practices? Yeah, almost everything I learned I use, of course. It was my first startup, so I learned how to work with a team, how to trust people, how to make quick decisions, how to estimate probabilities, and how to... Uh, be decisive in the face of incomplete data and um, make the, the big bets when I believe I have an advantage. It's just what venture is all about. It's really quite similar. The difference being we create value and then blackjack we didn't. That's a big difference. Other than that, it's similar. Do you think it's possible to automate this decision-making, VC decision-making? I think you can automate some decision-making. You're not going to automate value creation. You're not going to anytime soon automate true empathy for a founder and i know from experience that unless you really care and really really want to help the person you're not going to be able to really make a big impact right just having connections in the space having skills having knowledge about the market is not going to make as much of a difference to a founder as a mentor an investor an advisor who loves them who wants them to win no matter what so if you can build a software program that does that good luck Is it also why you prefer to invest on uh, earlier stages? Is it easier to make impact? It is easier to make impact in the earlier stages. Yeah, for sure. But sometimes I get really excited about a Series A founder and I just want to be a part of it too. Yeah, the amounts of Series A though that you just mentioned, I mean, they're so the amounts of funding in general are so different uh, in the US and in Europe. It's really not that different. It's just uh, it's just a naming scheme for the rounds. It's different. What we call a seed round is what you call a Series A. What we call a B is you know etc. What you call a B is what we call an A. Other than that, it's exactly the same. You just mentioned a pre-seed of uh, more than one million. That's not what you can <laughs> hear. Pre pre-seed is between half a million and a million in the U.S. And that's that's a seed round. Yeah, that, that that's our seed. That's the only difference. It's just, I mean, look, it's just a time. You look at it another way. It's a time difference. In the U.S., 10 years ago. We, The rounds were exactly what they are in Europe today. I wouldn't attach too much meaning to these names. What made them grow, though? It's just naming. And, and people in the industry just say European A. And, and they know it's more or less the same thing as a seed. Is that already a thing? Yeah, yeah, people know. That's, that's the thing. Like, if it's an A in Europe, we literally call it a European A. That's what the company raised. Because, you know, you're still talking the same thing. Now, it's true that in Europe, that A tends to be a growth round. Like, the expectations are that there's product market fit and that money is used for expansion. 
right. so in that sense, it's like an A. But of course, the amounts are much smaller because the markets are smaller, the opportunities are smaller. Yeah, well, that, that 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 makes perfect sense for sure. And you also mentioned in the talk that uh, now there are more uh, firms that uh, do a similar thing, uh, investing in uh, immigrant uh, founders. Uh, are they also in the U.S.? So there's one firm called Unshackled. We're really like there in San Francisco, uh, two great young Indian partners, and we actually uh, uh, an LP. We are an investor. Our fund invested in their fund, right? Uh, which is very unusual. We're not really set up to invest in other funds, but we love their mission and we love the people, so we invest. Do you think if there were a similar fund in Europe, you would also consider uh, becoming an LP there? Yes, but I would prefer uh, like merging in with them somehow and actually have it be a part of one way, either by opening an office here directly or perhaps by we could we could maybe partner with another fund where it's like co-branded or something there. You know, maybe we own a minority share of it, right? But we work together. We'd like to be more. We, we don't want to just be a passive investor in another immigrant I've had in Europe. We want to actively uh, be involved. Europe to us is a more immediate and pressing expansion destination than the West Coast. One day we want to be on the West Coast too, maybe, but we want to go to Europe way before then. And we want to go to Brazil and we want to go elsewhere in the world before the West Coast, just because of competitive reasons, right? There's just so much less capital available, so many more opportunities. And we have more roots and connections as well. Right. Well, that was it for my questions. Uh, thank you so much. Uh, this was Andrew Degler with Tegler to you, catching up with uh, Simon Dukac from uh, uh, the OneWay uh, investment company that uh, invests uh, in immigrant founders. Simon, thank you very much for joining me and enjoy the rest of the conference. Thanks very much. Hello and welcome back to the podcast of tech.eu. This is still me, Andre Degler, uh, joined by Natalie Novik, and we are talking about uh, the news from uh, the week that has passed. Next topic in the agenda, a startup called Pitch that, is, that has just raised $19 million to take on slide decks. So uh, I do uh, have to create an occasional uh, presentation once in a while, not that it happens too often, but in the same way as everybody else, uh, I love to hate uh, all the presentation tools uh, that are there from PowerPoint to Keynote to Google Slides that I mostly use. Uh, but I also have to say that there were not too many startups that uh, have come even remotely to become successful at uh, disrupting the status quo over the years, especially in terms of popularity and number of people uh, using those alternatives. So now we are about to see a new contender in the space. Exciting times. A Berlin-based startup called Pitch has just raised 19 million American dollars uh, to build, uh, a quote, a new platform for presentations and content collaboration, quote ends. Altogether, the startup has already raised 22 uh, million. So Pitch was founded in January uh, this year uh, by Christian Reber, uh, the co-founder and former CEO of uh, Six Wunderkinder, uh, the company behind the to-do app called Wunderlist that uh, so many of us, I think, uh, have used. Uh, there are a few more people in Pitch uh, who used to work uh, for Six Wunderkinder, including uh, the co-founders, uh, Jan Martin and uh, Charlotte Prevost. Uh, Microsoft acquired this company in 2015, uh, and back three years ago, and I guess the founders parted ways uh, with the corporation the moment uh, their contracts uh, allowed it and uh, went ahead with, uh, with their new venture. 
Yeah, and this is an announcement that I'm really excited about. As you mentioned, a lot of people love to hate on presentation tools. And the early images of the product look really great. You haven't seen quite that. There isn't that much out there, but you have a very accomplished team um, behind it. And they're moving very quickly. So um, I'm really looking forward to it. Yeah, I guess they just can't, uh, can't move quick enough. And uh, this uh, announcement uh, comes uh, uh, in, a really, in a really good time and everybody is very excited about it. But the bad news here is that the app actually is not there. You cannot download and try it. It will only launch somewhere in uh, 2019. Currently, Pitch is in private beta with a few businesses, so most of us have quite little idea of what it's going to be like. Uh, here is what uh, we do know from... Uh, from the interview that uh, TechCrunch's Ingrid Lunden uh, uh, conducted with uh, Reber. So first thing, it's going to be what the founder calls a presentation tool for the Slack generation. So what I can take from that is it's going to be fast, it's going to be sleek, it's going to be generally sense-making, and it's going to look better than uh, what we have at the moment. At least that was what Slack was like back when it was uh, first uh, released compared to the alternatives. Second thing, uh, as uh, Reber puts it, uh, Pitch integrates with everything you already use. So he described uh, presentations on Pitch as uh, so-called, uh, quote-unquote, living documents that change dynamically depending on modifications made to other connected documents or maybe any other files. And this is something great. This is something I can see a lot of use for uh, in all sorts of organizations uh, for all sorts of collaboration. Third thing we know is there is going to be a social sharing element to it, something like what we already have uh, on a SlideShare uh, that uh, was acquired by LinkedIn, well, that was acquired by Microsoft again. Uh, so you're going to be able to create presentations just for your own use, for offline use, but also you can share this presentation with either a selected group of people or every pitch uh, user around. Again, something pretty pretty interesting because I think right now sharing the presentations online still sucks even with a slide share. I, I would definitely be happy to see what they can come up with. So in general, I'm really excited about the development, uh, but just a reminder, it's not the first attempt at uh, building a better alternative to uh, PowerPoint or Keynote. We all know uh, Prezi, which... Uh, raised more than 70 million dollars uh, for example and uh, that's a great tool i really like the way the presentations made with a, a prezi look uh, but i really rarely see it being used in real life in fact most of the times i think that i saw a presentation made on prezi being shown on stage at a conference would be when the speaker was uh, peter arvai who actually happens to be Prezi's co-founder and uh, who, of course, would be eating his own uh, dog food uh, all the time. Anyway, I'm really looking forward to seeing uh, Pitch launching next year. I'm really happy that we have a contender in this kind of space that is kind of uh, considered as already being done for and already being um, divided between uh, larger players. Right. And, and I imagine Microsoft is probably very interested in this development as well, um, especially considering that this integration, especially across documents, is one you would think that they would have thought about integrating with their own products. Yeah. And it was like, I think it was kind of obvious what was kind of in the air 
there are so many situations where you would need something like this, but yeah, nobody was able to do it so far. And I haven't heard of uh, Microsoft uh, thinking in this direction. I'm just wondering really whether these uh, uh, founders would be willing to sell something to Microsoft yet again. And I guess whether they do it or not will kind of show what they think about uh, Microsoft's uh, acquisition of uh, uh, Six Wonder Kinder and uh, what they ended up uh, doing with the uh, uh, with the app uh, with the Wonder List. Right, this is time for us to move uh, towards the next part of the podcast, which is uh, the events calendar. The season is still going on. Uh, there are still so many places you can go to. Uh, so, Natalie, can you tell us more what's coming next? Sure. And as we as we mentioned on the podcast previously, this is um, a huge week for events um, with Sastock happening in Dublin, um, the Inspire Fest also happening in Dublin. There's a few uh, events happening um, in Berlin, but I think Maker Fair is happening in Rome right now. So it's, it's also a very exciting time, but I've been traveling a lot lately and I'm a bit burned out. So for the next few weeks, I'm really concentrating on spending some time at home in my local ecosystem. And I'm pretty excited about a few things that, that are on the calendar here in Edinburgh um, on Tuesday. So the day after this, uh, the day before this podcast actually comes out, I'm looking forward to meeting the new companies accepted to Wira's Edinburgh Accelerator Program. Um, this is Wira's largest incubator in the UK. It, this launch is really it's brand new. Um, it's held in conjunction with the university. I'm really excited to to see what what's going to be coming um, next from them. And on Friday, I'm going to a very interesting conference that's held by the Law Society of Scotland. And they're holding this event on law and technology, where they're bringing together mostly lawyers to talk about some of the developments um, in, in technology related to their profession. So there's some cool panels on AI, cryptocurrency, and blockchain. And I'm really looking forward to seeing how these practitioners view these common technologies. Um, and I'm really looking forward to that. Andre, are you going to be anywhere this week? Uh, not really, no. I really liked uh, the way you put it, spending more time in my local ecosystem. That's exactly how I'm going to call uh, the times when I want to lay down on my couch. <laughs> this is going to be my local ecosystem, and that's where I'm going to spend quite some time in the next uh, few days for sure. But yeah, my traveling is uh, pretty much uh, done for most of the season except uh, of course the mandatory uh, trip uh, to slush which i would uh, never miss i really like this uh, conference i really like the people who organize it and i really like uh, being around so if you're listening to this and going to slush please don't hesitate to send me an email at andri at tech.eu and uh, let's uh, meet up and uh, have a coffee so what else uh, what are we missing out on then what's uh, what's going to happen uh, in the next few weeks yeah so um, if you're if you're still working on your calendar um robin of vouchers our founding editor will be at the fintech belgium summit um, in brussels on october 22nd 
And our chief operating officer, Helen Walsh, will be at NOAA's London conference on October 30th to the 31st. Um, And if you'd like to schedule a meeting uh, and connect with her personally, you can can write to helen at tech.eu. And NOAA events um, are pretty exclusive. They're they're really for kind of the CEOs, executives, or for people at the founder level. But what I really appreciate about them is they bring together a lot of really great people, and it's all live streamed. So if you want to catch something and you're not, um, and especially hearing from directly from some of the founders of these companies, um, you can check it out online. Um, lots of really, really interesting people are there. So um, if that's something that interests you, um, I would encourage you to check it out. And thankfully, they've made it all available for free. Um, so even if you're at home in your local ecosystem on your couch, you can catch it. <laughs> Right. So uh, you can always check for more events on our website. And if you think that we have missed something, please go ahead and uh, fill out a special form on the website to send us uh, the event and we will add it to our calendar. In the meantime, it is time to move to the recommendation part, my favorite part of the podcast. And again, I would like to ask you, Natalie, to start. You wanted to talk about uh, uh, Kyra Swisher, right? Yeah. So um, this is also my favorite part of the podcast as well. Um, And my recommendation this week is a piece from Slate's Executive Time column, So this is a semi-regular feature that brings together a number of great people who come to talk um, about what they've learned from the best bosses that they've had. Um, But this time, Kara Swisher was taking part. And if you don't know, uh, she's the founder of Recode, and she's been covering tech mostly in the U.S. since the days of AOL. But she also spends a lot of time in Europe, and so she knows the ecosystem here pretty well, um, too. And last year, it it seemed like I was really following her around at a number of conferences. She was over at Web Summit and then later at DLD. And something I really appreciate about her work is that she's really kind of no bullshit with absolute transparency. And she's one of the few tech journalists that really will hold CEOs and founders accountable and doesn't do the hero worship that you see um, that is happening on some other um, publications. But Kind of getting back to to my recommendation here, the the Slate post, it it really, it's such a great one. And unlike many of the posts in this executive time column, it's not like a fawning piece about like, oh, these guys, these bosses have taught me so much and so on. It's really more about kind of being yourself at work and how to bring that out. And Kara really has this founder's mentality and admits she's not really a great employee, but the post kind of expands on that. And it's about kind of standing up for yourself and having the confidence to be who you are and do what you want um, within an organization, which I found really inspiring. And she's been on quite a bit of a tear lately. And last week, she also did an AMA on Reddit um, about what how she's joined um, the New York Times as an opinion contributor. And, and that that um, feature is just so much, so full of honesty and um, she's super transparent and accessible. Um, and she's always doing live streaming and she's on Twitter all the time. I don't know how she does the energy for it, but I'll, I'll stop fangirling um, right now. But if you haven't had a look, go have a check out that piece 
Um, it's really inspiring, but it doesn't ask to be inspiring. Um, it's just super, it's just real down to earth, um, excellent writing. Um, and it's short, so you have no excuses not to look it up. Hey, I'm sold. I'm definitely going there. I have just opened it uh, uh, on my browser, so I will definitely read it. I also appreciate uh, uh, Kara Swisher's work a lot. I think she's uh, she's a great uh, she's a great tech journalist, and uh, she uh, she knows how to ask uh, these uh, difficult uh, questions, these hard questions, and she would just basically hound this uh, founder she is with until she gets the answer she needs. And this is something I really appreciate about her. And this is something of a role model for me as a journalist uh, in many cases. So yeah, thanks for this. Uh, coming from myself as a recommendation today is a little bit of a blockchain related skepticism. Uh, I'm generally not uh, very fond of uh, the whole uh, hype around uh, this, uh, this uh, tool and uh, this uh, uh, things that are supposedly better when done on blockchain. And uh, this week I saw an interesting opinion piece. Uh, it is called uh, The Big Blockchain Lie. And that's obviously very critical towards uh, blockchain in general and uh, cryptocurrencies uh, in particular. I don't necessarily agree with everything here. I'm still not that critical towards it. I still do believe that there could be a limited use for blockchain in the real world, but the piece is definitely worth reading and thinking about, even if uh, you don't agree. And the second link in the same vein uh, that I will be putting in the show notes is a close look at an initiative called uh, Civil, and that's a blockchain-based uh, surprise uh, startup that's trying to save journalism from the crisis it's been going through over the past few years or maybe even decades. As far as I understand, what Civil does is it is using what's called a token curated registry, also known as TCR, and that's a thing that allows token holders to kind of challenge other members of uh, the of the community. Uh, if they violate certain codes. So in this case, uh, uh, token holders would be able to challenge publications that are part of the civil initiative in case they think they're violating the code of ethical journalism. Unfortunately, there are quite a few reasons why it's not likely to work. And uh, uh, in this uh, piece I'm linking to, all these reasons are uh, put together very nicely. At the same time, it does seem that uh, civil is a um, company that is really sincere about uh, willing to make the journalism world, uh, world a better place, but probably blockchain is not exactly what's going to help with that. Anyways, no matter what you think of uh, blockchain or cryptocurrency or journalism, uh, go ahead and check out these uh, two stories. Uh, they are both free, but for the second one, you would have to register with uh, FT's Alphaville. And uh, let us know uh, what you think and whether you agree with uh, any parts of these stories. Natalie, what's your own take on uh, uh, blockchain and cryptocurrency and the hype and all that? Yeah, and I think there is a, quite a lot of hype. But what you also see, especially when you spend some time talking with these founders, there is a lot of really accomplished people that are devoting a lot of time and a lot of energy to these technologies. And obviously, we've seen the huge amounts of investment that have gone into blockchain companies. Um, I just produced a piece recently about kind of the magnitude of investment in this space, and, and it's really huge. So investors are betting on it, but you also, I think, have this, this more um, 
real enthusiasm that comes from the kind of practitioners and devotees that are really dedicated to this technology. Um, while we've really yet to see a broad application outside of the cryptocurrency space, I think there really is something there. And I look forward um, to having a, a checking out those pieces that, that you suggested um, and and there's it, it's still I think early days for the, this technology and um, it's often hard to separate fact from fiction here and hopefully that that becomes things become more clear as it as it goes along. I'm really fascinated also by the sheer number of uh, uh, people who are really great uh, technologists and highly educated people and people who understand what they are doing in general uh, who are buying into this ecosystem. So this is this is one of the reasons why I'm not going uh, head first critical on this, why I still think that there might be something coming uh, off it. But also recently, I'm not sure, I don't think uh, we discussed it on this podcast, but did you see uh, this uh, uh, story about uh, Tim Berners-Lee uh, trying to reinvent uh, the internet? No, I didn't actually. Now that, that that that's actually pretty interesting. I will also add it to to the show notes. But uh, so yeah, the the inventor, the creator of uh, the World Wide Web, uh, Tim Berners Lee, Sir Tim Berners Lee, I should say probably, uh, he is uh, kind of terrified by what the internet uh, has become over the past uh, two decades, three decades even, and uh, he has started working on a new kind of internet, I guess. Uh, the one which uh, would, by design, allow the users to be in charge of uh, their own, own data, to own it truly, to control who can use this data, and so on and so forth. So there's going to be a something, something really absolutely new. Uh, I'm not sure what exactly it's going to be, but uh, as far as I understand, it's not going to be uh, based on blockchain. It's not going to be something like dApps or whatever else. It's going to be a totally different architecture. And uh, I do trust that uh, this particular gentleman can, uh, can do something that makes sense for the internet and for the internet users. So I'm very much looking forward to that. And I'm really wondering what uh, the role of uh, blockchain will or could be in that uh, new kind of uh, network architecture and uh, uh, web architecture that uh, Berners-Lee is proposing. Yeah, and, and that's a really interesting development because he has been quite vocal um, over the last few years about some of the harms that the internet has has had with society and really trying to instill a sense of ethics and accountability um, it, it seems like a really important initiative to try to advance in some meaningful way. Yeah, and as far as I understand, uh, he kind of he leaves everything else that uh, he has been busy with. Uh, he just puts it all on hold, only to be busy with this uh, with this startup of his and uh, kind of save the internet. Wow. Okay, we are running quite late already, so I guess it's time to wrap uh, this episode up. This is it uh, from us today. I hope you enjoyed listening to this episode. Please don't miss the ones to come. Subscribe uh, on your favorite podcast app, including Spotify. Just look for tech.eu podcast. Tell everyone you know about us. Uh, follow our updates on Twitter at tech underscore EU and on Facebook. Please feel free to email us with any suggestions 
comments, questions and opinions, just send an email to andri at tech.eu. Natalie, thank you so much for joining today. It's always a pleasure to co-host this podcast with you. Thank you so much, Andre. And also everyone out there that's working on great blockchain products, um, send them to Andre at tech.eu. Um, he would love to get all of those. Okay, if it's close to the real world, if, it, if it's a real world application, then of course I will be happy to read about them. Okay, enjoy the rest of your week. Uh, we're going to talk to you next Wednesday. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. <laughs>